Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. In our week in IndyCar series, your listener Q&A show, driven by everything you submit via Facebook, Reddit, and Twitter. Yet again, we have a bevy of questions y'all have sent in. Thankful, happy to say that ramping down very heavily on the Roger Penske buying everything topic. Certainly lots more new things that have developed. We'll be getting into here momentarily. Last week's episode, (laughs) told you up front, had about two hours. Very fortunate that my amazing wife, Mrs. Pruitt, chose to go a little bit overtime on her own uh, private time. Just a nice bath and just relaxation. Expected that to be about two hours. Ended up going much longer. So for those who listened and wondered how at the beginning of the show, I said we'd have about two hours. And by the end, we were at three and a half, I think. Well, guess what? I'm probably not going to give any hints up front as to how long I think I might have. I'll suggest here that I truly do not have more than two hours to offer right now because I have interviews with other folks coming up. So... It's about 1243 California here on Wednesday. And yeah, going to see how far I can get by 245 or so. And then maybe call an audible to go just a little bit longer if necessary. But I do have other things to do starting at three. As usual, need to thank you for all the great questions you continue to send in for yours truly. It's been a very busy week with... Rather wacky things going down in Monterey in regards to Laguna Seca. My wife and I had our 14th wedding anniversary yesterday. Did our best to take that off. Actually have a day where we weren't traveling to appointments. And coming into the little home office here was not really a thing. Although I still think I cranked out three stories. But we'll disregard that part. Anyways, I'm not exactly sure how we got to midday Wednesday, but here we are. As always, it's time to lavish praise and love and thanks on Cooper Tires for partnering with this show now, going on two years with the Justice Brothers, their amazing line of automotive chemicals, lubricants, and whatnot. Coming up at the end of our first year together, torontomotorsports.com. If you have a t-shirt, a sticker, memorabilia or swag related to motor racing. It's a strong possibility it came from our friends at torontomotorsports.com. And finally, Bell Racing Helmets USA. I just throw in the USA part because, dang it, they're in Speedway, Indiana. Could you be any more American? Super, super love from them and support. Going to mention one sponsor that isn't a sponsor. I did this last week just because he's a friend and I want him to profit as much as possible. And that is if you're a friend, if you're a pal, if you are a supporter of the amazing Canadian race car driver, Robert Wickens, he has a brand new site where you can buy things with his name on them. And the profits go to him. Robert Wickens Merch, M-E-R-C-H dot com. Robert Wickens Merch dot com. Buy things. Support Robbie. Put a couple dollars in his pocket. All good things. We'll mention that I am readying 
the, I think this will be the third. I don't know. Honestly, it might be the fourth annual, although I took last year off. So maybe it blows that concept, but the third or fourth Wilson children's fund charity thing. I really don't know what to call it. Thing we've done a couple times is autographed prints by lots of people, the entire starting grid for the Indy 500, Fernando Alonso, done a variety of things, all to raise money for Justin Wilson's daughters. Those donations going directly into wilsonchildrensfund.com. Kind of like the way that has worked, to be honest, for those who have won the bids for those various items in the past. They simply make the donation directly to wilsonchildrensfund.com. And then we ask them to forward their confirmation from the site, send them the goods. I think we're going to do that same process this year. And what we have to offer, it's a little more hashtag me personally themed. And that is event posters from all of the live MP podcast events that we did. Printed off about a 10, I think, maybe a dozen of each, 11 by 17 all the really awesome live show artwork that Roger Work did for me. Printed off roughly a dozen of those from each of the, I believe, eight shows that we did this year, keeping in mind that my season was curtailed pretty heavily. And I've gone back and had every person who participated sign them. So what I'm not sure, and I could probably use your input on here, is whether I should auction these off as a pack, meaning there's eight up for bid, eight containing the uh, 12 prints that are signed by everybody, or should I go individual, which I think, I don't know how many that would make, but there would be a lot to go up to auction. And so just kind of not sure what I should do, or should I do something in between maybe, maybe six packs so someone can bid on getting all of them and have the complete set. And then for the rest, those can just be auctioned and purchased individually. So not sure what I'm going to do there. If you have any insights, any ideas on what might interest you, drop me a note on the good old book faces or tweeters or whatever it is. Because the underlying goal here is to raise as much money for Justin's girls as we can. Last note before we get into your Q&A as we've done for, what, about two months now, maybe? Gone back to something we did a year ago with our pals at TorontoMotorsports.com. We have a weekly MP podcast gift pack giveaway. That sounds a little schmaltzy. I apologize. It's a real simple process. We look back on the MP podcast Facebook page from our call for questions and see whose question received the most likes, the most upvotes. And that winner gets your choice of whatever it is you want among the various t-shirts that we have, maybe a mug, some stickers, you name it. So the winner this time around from last week's show, Trip Hazard. I'm not sure if your first or last name are real, but I do know that is your Facebook screen name. So drop me a direct message with your email address, get you connected with torontomotorsports.com. We do have the new, (laughs) my favorite t-shirt I've come up with, working with Roger. That's the Robin Miller 2020 
I don't know what candidate he is exactly. President, uh, Earth, uh, I don't know what, but we have our new Robin Miller campaign t-shirts with his finest quote ever delivered on the podcast here from last month. That could be something that you get if you want, trip. So send me that DM, get you connected with torontomotorsports.com. And your question, which I want to read off here, has led to a lot of fun, and a lot of folks give me the business for not choosing who they feel is the right person. You said, all right, Marshall, here's my question. I'm casting the IndyCar movie. I've got James Roday from the show Psych playing Will Power. Sasha Baron Cohen is Pagano. The dog from Frasier is Norman. Christian Bale playing Chip Ganassi and Roger Penske in weight gain and aging makeup, respectively. Who else are you going to cast? And so on. So we had a lot of fun, and you all sent in a bunch of ideas. Enough so that I did make a note on my to-do list, which seems to just grow and never have things crossed out. I might actually dump all this just into a little fun, breezy story of if we were casting an IndyCar movie. Here's some of the leading candidates, just because it's fun. Nothing more than that. All right, let's do it. Let's get going here. It is now 1252. Clock's winding down. We're going to start off with huh, a little note from last week's show or in reference to last week's show from Ed Joris. This is Marshall. What was your reaction when you saw how long the listener Q&A podcast was? Better. What was Shabrell's reaction? Well, fortunately, She was surprised to learn that I recorded for that duration of time, but it genuinely just turned into a, I could stop at two hours, but kind of got not a lot to do because it was pretty darn late and going to sleep wasn't an option because I needed to help her. So yeah, unique scenario, Ed. Hopefully that's the exception, not the rule. Bryson and Frank, you're going to lead off the call it real questions for this episode and thank you said, Marshall, why has there not been a large backlash against Ed Carpenter racing after dropping Spencer Piggott this late into the offseason? Like there was against Spam, the Aero McLaren SP team, with James Hinchcliffe. He says, to me, both teams promised their driver a seat before rescinding that offer too late into the offseason to find another ride. It also seems as if there's a bit of a double standard in the reception that these teams have gotten for their decisions. Also, Tom Holland would play a perfect Colton Herta in this IndyCar movie. See, there's just great recommendations. I think it's a pretty easy answer to this, Bryson. I think the difference is awareness, right? If you are a Spencer Piggott fan, and I've been a fan of this kid since a long, long, long time ago, Definite insider pick, not someone who, based on race wins, frequency of visits to the podium, or just big, boisterous personality that has made a deep impact across the entire realm of IndyCar fandom, if I'm using WWE parlance, across the IndyCar universe. Hinch, on the other hand, Definitely a man of the people, well-known, much higher profile between the TV commercials and dancing on television for entertainment. 
this is just somebody who has connected with a massive audience by comparison to those that Spence is connected with. Doesn't mean one driver is better or worse than the other. Better person, lesser person, and really has nothing to do with judging who they are, the quality of their life existence and whatnot. Just one really honestly has not made nearly as much of an impact. Also hasn't been doing this nearly as long in IndyCar. So I can't fault your line of questioning at all, Bryson. This is an identical situation, except for one item, in that Hinch has a contract. Spence, on the other hand, again, I I was told there was the equivalent of a handshake or a verbal deal, a verbal intent to go forward in or around Monterey. No paperwork, though. Uh, The way I actually heard about this breaking down was not so much the handshake and or whatever else falling through, but Spencer's option was just simply not taken up. And that led to questions as to whether he would return, and that's where I started trying to dig into the story a little deeper. Yeah, nonetheless, definitely hard. I would say much harder for Spencer for him to find something, and not just an IndyCar. Bryson, but also IMSA at this late of a date, as you mentioned. Hinch, we expect to be able to raise some money. Don't know how much, but some. Spence, we know, has been able to bring a little bit of money with him. He doesn't come from a wealthy family, but it's been a little bit of support that he's been able to drum up. Learning this weeks after Hinch, let's just say middle-ish of November, Boy, there's not much left in IndyCar. What is left comes with a price tag. In theory, you might look at the Foyt team and say, but wait a minute, they have two vacancies. Didn't they pay Tony Kanon last year? Haven't they paid their lead driver for a while? Yeah, um, and no disrespect to the Foyt team. I know that AJ, in a call with our man Robin Miller, not too long ago said he's got sponsors that he didn't want to name that have stepped in to replace ABC for the full season. That would be great. What I do know is drivers like Spencer, who've reached out and inquired with the team, have been asked to bring at least $3 million for the seat. Where that is approximately half a budget necessary to get there to a full season five and a half, six million million, $6 million budget, if you throw in a leader circle contract from IndyCar, it's worth a little over a million dollars. Well, all of a sudden you're at four. So if we're talking about sponsorship a team might have and what they ask, if you look at the amount the driver's being asked for, plus add a million-dollar IndyCar leader circle, in some instances, depending upon the team, whether it's Honda or Chevy, we think that there could be a break on the engine lease price, might even be free. If so, that's about a one point. If it's totally free, 
1.3 million dollar break i'll just paint this scenario not saying it's the case i don't actually know but just go with me if the foyt team wants three million dollars from a driver for one of their cars indycar is going to give them a million dollars for a leader circle contract and engine manufacturer is going to void that invoice or just forget to send invoices you go from three to four to 5.2, 5.3 million. You have a budget more or less handled right there. So what sounds like a half budget, if it's a team that might have favored status with Honda or Chevy, that three million could actually punch the ticket to a full season ride without the team actually having to figure out how to work with a quote half budget. Nonetheless, if we look at a Spencer Piggott, I do not believe he would have anything like or the ability to find anything like $3 million to take up a ride at, say, A.J. Foyt Racing. Coming back to the no disrespect angle, Bryson, to close here, and I should have mentioned up front, we usually open the show with kind of a bigger topic to get into and then roll into, quote, standard questions after that. Would you pay $3 million to drive for a team that has finished last among teams for many years now that isn't sure who's going to drive for them, that is shaking up their engineering department? We don't know exactly who's going to be there. If you are bound and determined to be an IndyCar, that's an avenue, but it's a tough ask especially for someone like Spencer who's driven for a quality midfield team, having to come out, go find money, a lot of money, to run with a team that so far has not proven it's capable of stepping up from the back of the field. That's why things look tough for Spence. Also would say IMSA, with some of the things going on there in terms of car count, in both GTs and prototypes. The only of their four classes, only LMP2 appears to be on the rise in terms of car count. It had two full-time cars last year. So we're talking about four cars, maybe five cars. So it's not a huge thing, but it is an actual increase. But we are looking at the very strong expectation for a decrease in DPI by two or three. We know that the GT Le Mans class is going to be down at least two with Ford's exit. And GT Daytona is the only one that could be kind of sort of close to the numbers that it had. Just all comes back to, it's not like there's a lot of opportunities for drivers to get paid in IMSA next year. So rough timing, very rough timing for Spencer. And uh, we do know that he... He was told his seat was no longer available due to Ed Carpenter's racing need for budget. Bigger bigger picture here, Bryson, as well, talking about the needs, even for the midfield teams, to bring in, bring in money from drivers. So I'll get into that uh, yet again on another date and time. Let's go to our pal Jerry Sudeth. It says, after seeing Ford versus Ferrari this weekend, 
I began thinking of IndyCar related movies. I'd like to see get a similar treatment. It says hashtag me personally, which if you're listening for the first time, it's the official hashtag of the Marshall Pruitt podcast. It's the phrase I hate most because it's redundant. But anyways, thanks for using this when you send in questions. Jerry says hashtag me personally. I'd love to see a Lotus versus Watson movie. He says, if you could pick a topic for a good IndyCar movie, possibly even better than Driven, how dare you suggest that's possible, Jer? What would it be? The movie I dream of seeing. It is IndyCar-ish, but it is not restricted to IndyCar. I'm going to go with one of my all-time racing heroes, Jerry, and that is a movie, a biopic of some form about Jimmy Murphy, someone who, by every measure, was America's original A.J. Foyt. His accomplishments, just hard to fathom, knowing how punishing and deadly the times were in which he raced. Some of you might think, well, didn't Foyt survive, you know, come into prominence in the 50s and 60s? And, you know, didn't that guy? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I'm not saying things are easy or simple or happy or safe. Just sharing that Murphy was born in the late 1800s here in nearby San Francisco. Son of Irish immigrants. Family was devastated in the 1906 earthquake that leveled so much of San Francisco. Born in poverty, raised in squalor. I'm trying to remember, I believe his mother was killed in the earthquake. Uh, seemingly almost raising himself. I mean, he would have been about 12 at the time of the earthquake. This is someone coming from nothing. Among the last folks you would expect to get into a motor racing vehicle and demonstrate anything. To see the self-made man win the 1921 French Grand Prix, this being on the Le Mans circuit, uh, I believe it was the last or one of the last two Grand Prix held there. The inaugural 24 Hours of Le Mans started in 1923, so he's the first American to win a Grand Prix. You know your Formula One history, you know in terms of it being a formal structure that started a couple decades later, but well before the official start of the Formula One World Championship in 1950. Obviously, there's immense history that precedes that date with the auto union and Mercedes and just amazing eras of Grand Prix racing, pre-war and post-war, World War One. Well, to think that in these early, early days, the late teens, early 20s, an American driving an American car, Duesenberg, went to France, won, became the first American to win a Grand Prix in 1921 on the Le Mans circuit. It's a little bit of debate as to whether it's, it's accurate or not, Jerry, but we do know that during practice for the race, he rolled rolled the car and is said to have broken ribs. And the accounts of how that worked 
exactly what happened. Again, there, there's a little, little bit of contention, but most of what I've read, most of the research that I've done, it all points to him being basically bandaged up and lifted into the car. And I think the Grand Prix, I forget how many hours the Grand Prix lasted, but it just was brutal and came out on top. And then back-to-back accomplishments, not only does Murphy become the first American to win a Grand Prix doing that in the rock-strewn, unpaved Le Mans circuit in 1921, then takes that same car, the same Duesenberg, using a Miller engine, and wins the 1922 Indy 500. I mean, just in terms of year-to-year accomplishment, it's mind-boggling. Preceding all this, he was known as the king of the board tracks, which, just from a lethality standpoint, these being America's first readily built ovals, wooden tracks made out of boards. I was a king of the board tracks, which just pretty much the craziest form of racing, uh, highest life versus death ratio I more or less know of. He was the king, came from nothing, won these two amazing races, was killed in 1924 at a board track event, was gored, sadly, uh, speared right through uh, the chest with a board after crashing. Um, other thing that I just think really deserves documentary or biopic or something, Jerry, is there's some real rush-like drama. Yeah, I would say going far past what Nicky Lauda and James Hunt had. Between Murphy and the person who was his mentor, Tommy Milton, another Indy 500 winner, um, those two had a, a crazy, amazing falling out uh that <laughs> there's some real drama i'll just leave i'll just leave it there there was some hardcore drama and so between these two um i think their story plus what he achieved where he stands as again the the aj foyt america really probably america's first aj foyt and how at least today not a surprise more than a hundred years later, or almost a hundred years later, that story is largely forgotten. But yeah, he's the one I'd love to see celebrated and honored for sure. Let's go to Clay Williams. Marshy mentioned in last week's episode that $1.5 million is the estimated cost to have a technical partnership in IndyCar. Do you have an estimate of how much the team buying the partnership is saving using the larger team's employees? Do they hire less engineers or maybe don't need to spend on an R&D budget for certain areas of the car? Well, you've struck upon the real value, quote value, that is being sold here, Clay. Race engineer salaries vary, but the good ones can be paid. I mean, they're definitely into six figures for sure. Uh, good ones are definitely well over a hundred thousand dollars, some over 200, not, I wouldn't say a lot, but there's a, a solid number there. Depending on the arrangement, there could be an assistant engineer that comes with that. That person's probably somewhere in the high six figures, maybe depending on who it is, 
very low, I'm sorry, high five figures, very low six, but you could see how $300,000 in salary or so, 250 to 300 might be part of what's consumed in that one and a half million estimate. The other thing that you are pointing out here, which is really the big part, is the, oh, so if we can rely upon the bigger team and their R&D directions, investments, and so on, knowing that the smaller team has actually helped paying into that to increase that number and or offset some of the money being spent by the big team, that's where the real value comes from. Uh, more than just a super high-quality race engineer and possibly assistant engineer, the value for a shank or a whomever involved in a technical partnership is just this on the R&D side. Hey, you know things we don't. It's going to take us many years and millions of dollars to try and get to where you are, keeping in mind that every year you're getting one step ahead as well. It's going to be very hard to bridge the gap and get to where you are. How do we accelerate that? Well, we opt in. We strike a technical alliance, and all of a sudden, the very same damper discoveries that you have made during the off-season, all of the ride height and suspension geometry and aero and just all the things, items that possibly reduce friction, items that are more efficient. All these areas that a bigger team like an Andretti Autosport is searching for, spending money on, these fishing expeditions. Well, whatever they catch, a Meyershank Racing eats as well. And they're contributing the budget on the fishing expedition. But that is honestly, that's the big benefit. I don't think we're going to get... Michael Shank to explain how it's broken down or how he thinks it's divvied up. But again, I'm just using the 1.5 as a number I've heard. If that is the number and if 300 ish goes towards one or two engineers, we don't know exactly how much might go towards R and D side. Then you have the question of, and what's profit? (laughs) How much of that is just straight adding to the overall budget and or income for the bigger team to make use of. Save it, to spend it, to share it, who knows. But what's the number of profit? Don't know. Definitely, though, would be a thing for bigger teams to consider, and I'm sure if they can afford it, more smaller teams would want to consider opting in. Let's go to... Billy Potter, I love this question, Billy, says, Marshall, I know you've mentioned in the past few podcasts that Robin and yourself have passed along the names of potential drivers to Foyt. He says, while the search firm of Pruitt Miller is an excellent tandem, is that not also a microcosm of the larger issues at Foyt? Shouldn't there be someone on staff who has their finger on the pulse of the marketplace for potential drivers, akin to a general manager in other sports? Fair point, Billy. Would be lying if I said that didn't kind of sort of run across my brain as well. I would need to qualify, though, that I think if we're looking at, say, general manager, team manager type, uh, Larry Foyt or Scott Harner, 
heck, a Craig Baranowski who's been there forever. They, by and large, know everybody and or have an idea of who they might consider. Knowing that AJ does many things in life, has multiple businesses, is not necessarily waking up at 3 in the morning to watch the whatever Formula 2 race on ESPN Plus uh, to try and do talent spotting. I would say this is more reserved for, uh, let's say, the senior post at Foyt, uh, the man whose name is the team. What I don't know and what isn't clear is where the final decisions happen to fall, Billy. Is this something where if the name, some of the suggestions made to AJ are concrete, meaning he's, yeah, okay, I like those, hate those, whatever, but I am the one to make that call? Is that a Larry thing? Is it the two of them? I'm not sure. I know of one driver who visited with the team recently is not in IndyCar, has never driven an IndyCar, believe would be very good in IndyCar. My guess is, strictly a guess, that driver might be someone that, say, Larry identifies as worth exploring, developing, maybe doing a test, but having an eye towards hiring them. AJ, on the other hand, I would Bet everything that I own. Never heard of the kid. No idea what he's done before. I'm not entirely sure uh, would pronounce his name the way it's intended. Uh, Just a a complete void. And so, again, this comes back to not every level or layer within the team has their finger on the pulse. And so, you know, we we do this a lot. I don't know if you'd be surprised. I mean, there probably isn't a reason, but for those in the media, it is our job by and large to have awareness of a lot of things spanning multiple series quite often. And, you know, if you're talking about a NASCAR reporter, they might have a full-time job in covering the Monster Energy Sprint Cup series, but they probably also know down to you know, the lower tiers, maybe know ARCA a little bit, maybe, you know, just keep an eye. And so if asked by a team owner, hey, who are you hearing about? Who are you seeing? Easy to have that conversation. So not a surprise that the same thing happens in IndyCar. Should also say that this kind of inquiry comes from a number of places in the sport. Um, So the amount of times that, whether it's myself or Robin or, I'm sure plenty of our our colleagues or rivals at other outlets. It's not an uncommon thing at all. Uh, Plus the sharing of contact information. Uh, Had someone from one team, IndyCar team, who left that team ring and say, hey, I've left that team. To which I said, oh, I didn't know that. Everything okay? Yeah, everything's okay. But, uh... Time for a change. Oh, good for you. Hey, do you have a number for the guy that owns this team? Sure do. And you share it? Let me ask. Owner said yes. Fired him the uh, contact info. Hopefully they've spoken. We'll see if that person's in their pit space next year. So, I don't know. Part of this, Billy, is just normal. 
being someone to offer some ideas, some context, and or connect folks, it's not an uncommon thing at all. We'll see if it's determined to have any value, though. So stay tuned on what the Foyt team is or isn't doing, because they sure as heck aren't saying. Let's go to Jim Kaiser. Brother, what are we up to, I think, a, a month now? Do we celebrate one month of haiku? Here we go. A weekly turn of phrase for the newest full-time entry owner from Jim Kaiser, who says Jack Harvey full-time really bolsters next year's grid. Good job, MSR. Again, I mean, we've got haiku, weekly haiku on the Weekend IndyCar Listener Q&A show. I know that I offer no other value, but I can certainly claim this to be a very unique offering. So hopefully it's appreciated. I do. I appreciate it, Jim. Ryan Ward, great stuff. Marshall, a couple questions on the silly season front. We haven't got a lot of information on. He says, with Scuderia Corsa seemingly on the outs with Ed Carpenter Racing, what would be their next move? If I was a gambling man, I would bet they partner up with Carlin Racing and Ed Jones runs the ovals while Max Chilton runs road and street courses. And Ed is their third car at Indy. He said, given Ed's history with Carlin and relationship with Scuderia Corsa, Seems to be a pretty solid fit. Any truth to the rumor? I just started. You got another question or two here, so let me answer this one first. Had that same thought, Ryan. Did ask someone end of last week who would have known about the continuation between Scuderia Course and ECR and was told that there's nothing official in terms of a no, but it did seem less likely kind of what I've been saying for a little while now. Did speak with Scuderia Corsa team owner Giacomo Mattioli at the IMSA race at Monterey in mid-September. And the kid's now been hired, so it's not betraying confidence. But did ask him, hey, what do you think? You're going to be back next year, yada, yada. And didn't really give any any indicator as to yes or no, other than, oh, you know, we're looking at it, we're thinking, we're, you know, non-committal answer, but then also mentioned, hey, what do you think about this uh, Renus VK kid? Granted, Renus had tested for the team in August, so it wasn't like it was a connection that came out of nowhere, but yeah. Not sure if the Renus angle is something that would make Scuderia Corsa re-engage Ryan and I mentioned the Renus angle, knowing that you mentioned the Ed angle, because Scuderia Corsa brings money. And if they aren't bringing money to support a driver, I don't see how this continues, at least at Scuderia Corsa, unless Giacomo, quote, switches allegiance from Ed to Renus. Last little note here on the ECR slash Ed slash Scuderia Corsa angle is Scuderia Corsa sporting director Stefan Johansson manages Ed Jones. So kind of see if you weren't aware already how that link came together or how that link works. In terms of Carlin... Some interesting possibilities there that I've been hearing about, and I'm hoping to write about them soon. 
So I would love to go into more depth there. I think the angle you mentioned makes a lot of sense, Ryan, for sure. If Scuderia Corsa wants to keep going in IndyCar and spend money for a co-entry, it would make sense if they wanted to keep working with Ed to do the very same deal with the very same team where Ed won his Indy Lights championship. So although you just started the rumor, I would say it's maybe less of a rumor and more of a, oh, well, if I'm looking at things that folks might explore, that one would make sense for them to explore. You say, second, what about Team Stange? I don't know how to pronounce it. Stange? Stange? Stang? It's not strange. It's missing the R. S-T-A-N-G-E. This is the Motor Gator people that sponsored Oriole at the Indy 500 with Aerosmith-Peterson Motorsports this May. I believe I heard, although I might not have noticed, because keep in mind I had to fly home a day or two after qualifying and didn't return, something about the Motor Gator coming off the car for the race because there was a conflict. The Motor Gator product conflicted with Lucas Oil and their product somehow. I also heard that was one of a few things that was a complaint or might have been mentioned when former team president John Flack was released, uh, that that conflict was not recognized, seen, or explored before deals were signed. But anyways, this team, team Stange, uh, you ask, I believe they said they had a plan it was to run more than just Indy next season. They wanted to take a similar path to Meyer Shank racing, targeting around six races in 2020. Is that still the plan? Have you heard anything about this program? I would say I've heard that they have continued to have an intent. Spoke with someone today, and I'll just give a little quick sidebar. When I say I spoke with someone or a friend at a team called and said that they were leaving and don't mention the names, it's because those were private conversations and or not on-the-record conversations. Sometimes folks just call and talk and ask questions and vice versa. And in that context, just like the person who I spoke with today who gave me something they heard about the team stage plans was not, quote, on the record, just friends or former colleagues speaking. So... Apologize. It's not trying to be intentionally vague. It's just not every conversation that I have <clears throat> is in the guise of being a journalist. So, did get a little bit of an update there. Not saying it's accurate, just something that I heard. So, I did have a mental note, Ryan, to inquire as to whether that is accurate. Uh, and you also say, would they still partner up with Spam? Or would they be on the market for another Honda partnership? Maybe with Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan? since they have a good history with Oriole Servia. Would say the Arrow-Schmidt-Peterson angle that they had at Indy this year, even after Oriole qualified, I spoke with John Stange, and he told me we're talking to other teams about something for next year. Didn't say he would rule out Arrow-SPM, but this was before the McLaren angle came to light. So I would say barring just ridiculous amounts of money to throw at spam, there's no way that would happen. So I would expect 
If there's an angle, it's going to be with someone else. Howard Bennett. How are you doing, Howard? So there's a question for you. You've just moved house recently. So everything was packed and unpacked and hopefully still fresh in the old noggin. Well, I need to stop you there, Howard. Uh, I haven't. You might have noticed, although we moved on September 25th, might have noticed. I haven't really posted any photos of anything from the office for a while, other than maybe Rocky and Rosie sleeping on me or walking across, whatever. Yeah, it's because while the majority of the rest of the house is set up, not perfectly, but pretty close, the office is what has been the last area to receive attention. So and we keep having a lot of things that, frankly, far more important come up. So time availability and or at the end of the day, do I have the, not so much the physical energy, but the mental energy to do this stuff? The answer has been no. So, yeah, I'm turning my head and seeing a wall of crates that have to be corked open. But nonetheless, you ask, what are your favorite, most treasured racing trinkets, treasures, and memorabilia bits, pieces you've acquired along the way so far? Say, so give us a few oddities and some nice sentimental tales, please. Maybe I'll follow this one up with something a little bit deeper because I do need to jog the old noggin a bit because there's a lot. And I honestly, the reason that I want to uncork all this stuff as quickly as I can is to start selling a lot of it because we have a genuine need for me to turn the things that were once cash that became magazines, memorabilia, whatever, back into cash or to put back into a bank account. Also, a quick note that you know a lot of the stuff I've started acquiring in my teens in the 1980s, so uh, it's not as if all this is recent. But nonetheless, there is a need to do that. So my, my noggin will be better freshed, refreshed. Good Lord. All right, I'm making up words that don't exist. I have a better answer for you here in the coming weeks, hopefully, Howard. But off the top of my noggin, mentioned this maybe a couple times in the podcast before, but I hold a couple things. There are a couple things in the proverbial safe. Most of them are things that have been sent to me by my dear late friend, also coincidentally is one of my heroes in life, that being Dan Gurney. Dan had this amazing practice, and I know that I'm one of dozens, if not a hundred plus writers and reporters who've received such things over the years from him. But when he and I would do an interview or work on a story together, whatever it might be, would get these amazing letters in the mail, amazing cards sent. Uh, passed on sometimes uh, in person, whatever it might be. But we just get these amazing things that would say, hey, you know, I read the thing. Thank you. Hey, that was, I forgot we did that. I just read it or just found it. It's just, <laughs> it's just, it's still surreal, Howard. It's still surreal. Name the person in life that, other than a father or mother, you know, a sibling, name the person in life who you hold up as the prime example of all you want to be, hope to be, 
realize you could never be, but they are that role model, you know, professionally, maybe just how they conduct their lives as well in so many areas. So again, I made making a clear distinction that my father was amazing and was all those things to me, but just he's my father. This is someone that I didn't know growing up who was that person uh, and was for so long until we actually got to meet. And then it became even more surreal. And so it's just a lot of little things like that. Cards, a letter to that, you know, if the place ever catches fire, I'm getting my wife out the door. Then I'm coming back to get the cats. Then I am grabbing probably my laptop because it's got far too many podcasts on it that have yet to be produced. But I'm grabbing my laptop and the little safe that has some of those items in it. There's probably a lot of other things that I'm not remembering right now. Uh, there is one thing uh, I, re- I haven't mentioned it because it's it's just crazy and I haven't actually given it to my wife yet, but a factory motor racing team sent an amazing gift earlier this year uh, to my wife. And it was it is a piece from one of their race cars. And <laughs> it's a race used piece as well. It is, I don't even know how to describe, I mean, again, I'm intentionally not saying what it is yet because I haven't given it to my wife yet because I'm waiting to get it framed. Um, it, it's just, it's it's unfathomable, Howard. Um, I don't even know what the value is. If this thing were to go on to eBay or go to a private sale, I know that the, the monetary value is silly that has nothing to do with anything it's a a amazing gesture and a personal gift sent to my wife as a form of encouragement and respect and love and all that while she's been again fighting cancer and fighting mobility issues so haven't given that to her yet because that's just meant to be presented in a truly you know in a true presentation Uh, but yeah, uh, it's been sitting hidden away here, and every time I walk by it, I just look at it. I'm like, I, I, I can't even believe that that is here. It, it makes no sense. <laughs> so it's mostly those things. Um, you know, I've got some other things that are signed. Uh, Al Holbert signed a 1987 Lowenbrow Porsche 962 hero card of his for me that I have. That you know, I, yeah, that is just a truly prized and amazing thing. Um, and then there's maybe photos, a couple photos. Uh, the one that my friend Wes Dunkel took at Long Beach in 2000, what, seven, 2017, where Ford Performance, Kevin Kennedy being an amazing person, invited Robin and I upstairs uh, at the Long Beach Hilton to a little private room uh, containing Dan Gurney and A.J. Foyt as they were uh, discussing and being filmed, talking about the 50th anniversary, upcoming 50th anniversary of 
their win at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. And so not only being in the room watching these two titans of the sport with my aforementioned love and just all things uh, Gurney as well, it was amazing to see that. It was amazing to witness that Wes um, kindly, I don't remember if he offered, I think Miller yelled at me, hey, come here, fat ass or whatever. Uh, and we posed for a photo with Dan and AJ. And so if you've seen that photo, I posted it once or twice, the look on my face is I don't even know how to put words to it. It either looks like I'm holding on to the world's biggest fart or I don't know it, but my bizarre gassy facial expression is a perfect representation of what I was feeling. It's this, Oh my God, what? I know AJ, I know Dan, they're human beings. Uh, you know, they're no different than any of us, but yeah, just being there with these two folks, knowing what they did at Lamont, first all-american driving rotation all-american team to win at Le Mans at that point 50 years earlier knowing that Dan also within what 6 days 7 days of that victory won the Belgian Grand Prix in an all-american entry the eagle yeah just an amazing time and also while there and this comes to mind as two other items just memorabilia wise these are also packed away in the safe while there, knowing that I had AJ and Dan together, I had acquired, I think through my friend Paul Zimmerman at the motorsportcollector.com. Paul, by the way, is someone who's helped with every one of the Wilson Children's Fund charity drives that we've done. Just a, a, an amazing person. Paul had helped me find the program or a program from the 1967 Le Mans race. And I seem to recall it wasn't nearly as expensive as it should have been. Uh, he had two copies and sold me one of them. And knowing that I was going to be seeing, sitting down with the guys here together, I mean, they just rarely see each other. So anyways, just to wrap up, Howard um, was there with that and had the two of them sign it. And so, I mean, come on. <laughs> the program from the amazing Le Mans race that they won together, signed by the two of them. That's another thing I need to get framed. And then I also, I don't remember, it might have been there as well. I had uh, the Big Eagle sign a program for the 1962 French Grand Prix at Reims which I apologize, I should know this stuff with concrete, but I believe that was Dan's first Formula One win. This is driving for Porsche, which, or at least it was Porsche's first win, and so got him to sign that as well. I realize I'm mentioning a lot of gurney things are just coming to mind. So <laughs> that also prompted one other thing. Some of you might have seen this, Howard, as well, um, while I was packing to leave where we were at, um, that I found some prints think 16 by 20 or something along those lines that I'd had made years ago. And they were all Dan prints that he signed and had some nice inscriptions on some of them. And because I'm an idiot, I had rolled them up, put them in a little, I don't know, magazine holder 
put it on top of one of my bookshelves and forgot about it. <laughs> so as I'm pulling down like the last things to pack away, I'm like, what is that? You know, I've forgotten it's up there. These are really tall shelves too, uh, bookshelves. Pull it down and find like these three treasures. Uh, just, yeah. And then I think in there as well, I'd rolled up uh, the event poster from the 2009 American Le Mans series race at Laguna Seca, where Gilles DeFerrin's team uh, used a retro Jim Hall livery, Chaparral livery, and with Gilles and Jim's great relationship, also had one of the old Chaparral's there. Uh, they did some laps, you know, side by side with the old Chaparral and the Acura RX 02A in its Chaparral livery and whatnot. And so I uh, had Jim, Gilles, and Simon Pagano, Gilles' driver, sign that. That was rolled up sitting there, and I'm just like, Pruitt, you're such an idiot. So anyways, um, yeah, I'm a really fortunate guy, man. I really am. That's all I can say. Windy Carr says MP8 NASCAR just had its championship finale. It's not my thing, but I keep a peripheral eye there sometimes. Listening to your podcast since May, it's apparent NASCAR isn't your cup of tea either. Turn a phrase good. Basically, discovering you led me to follow IMSA. Now I'm a new fan of that. But would you care to riff on NASCAR? Tell you what, if this was probably five years ago, I'd probably have a lot of really negative things to say. And maybe part of my maturation or supposed maturation. I don't have a lot to say about NASCAR. It does not interest me. That's not a positive or negative statement. It just, it's not my thing. And that doesn't mean it shouldn't be other people's things. I hope lots of people, I hope more people learn about NASCAR and love it. As I do get older, dear Wendy Carr, I see more and more how the the old war, right? Oh, F NASCAR, IndyCar is way to go. F IndyCar, NASCAR is way to go. Folks tearing up, tearing down, playing up, playing down one another's sport, kind of the bench racing of this is better, this is worse, so on. Not saying that needs to stop, should stop, making no comment in that regard. Just saying that my willingness to engage in that definitely came to an end a while ago and that's because nascar has been hurting and while i might not have a particular interest in nascar from a fandom standpoint it is the most recognized form of motor racing in the country and so it is our canary in the coal mine as its health continues to fail racing's health continues to fail might say but wait a minute is an indycar up right don't we have better tv ratings and yes there are incremental improvements in many areas with indycar small enough though that it isn't moving the sport in a upward trajectory so this is no different than horse racing and it's something that's often cited. Horse racing was once the most popular sport in America long, long time ago, but no longer, not by any stretch. People almost forget it exists. Kentucky Derby, maybe, maybe one or two others. You know, the Triple Crown's known about by some, but Kentucky Derby's 
probably most Americans have heard of it. That's what IndyCar has been for a long time. The Indy 500 is a thing that a lot of us, everyone's probably heard of, mentioned at least once from someone in their lives. NASCAR, not saying that every, everyone knows about it or loves it, but NASCAR has become the thing that if we're talking motor racing, that's what most people identify as racing. Hey, I'm a racing fan. Oh, NASCAR? So when NASCAR on a year-by-year basis has been just stepping down and down and down as something tracked, followed, cared for on a national level, it makes me worry about the sport as a whole. It is our prime contender right now to let people know that we exist. It's us. We are the sport. This is our thing. As it is slowly losing its appeal, of course, you could say, well, then we need to actually do that. To heck with NASCAR. Everybody, get on the bandwagon. Play up IndyCar. That could be the thing. That could move up. Could. I doubt it. I mean, I would love to see it. Uh, I grew up at a time <laughs> where IndyCar was the, that was the answer. I, I like racing. Uh, IndyCar, that was the thing. But we're a long ways away from that happening again. So that's why me riffing on NASCAR, again, I don't find it that interesting. The drivers in particular, I, true full admission here, I use Wikipedia a lot when I see some of the names come up in articles written by my racer colleague, Kelly Crandall, because I'll see, oh, hey, this driver is getting the seat at whatever in the Xfinity series, and I'll say, oh, my ignorance, right? So I'm not blaming anyone, not trying to be funny, but truly, it's just my ignorance. I have no idea. I could not tell you a lot about more than half of today's cup drivers because I don't really follow the series closely. I don't really care. I can barely stay on top of the series I do cover and do care for. But I do know that crapping on NASCAR, it's not going to be the thing that makes IndyCar more popular. If anything, since NASCAR is our biggest product, letting, at least here in the U.S., letting those companies and media outlets and whatever know that Racing is still a thing and people care about it. Man, uh, whatever can be done to slow its decline, if not reverse its decline, that's the thing I'm hoping for. So maybe that's my riff. Ryan Terpstra, sorry for breaking your show clock last week. Say race car drivers are often referred to as pilots. In honor of the conclusion to the Star Wars Skywalker saga, the Honda drivers, since the H, sort of looks like a TIE fighter, are your first order pilots and the Chevy drivers, since the bow tie sort of has the same profile of an X-Wing, are your resistance pilots. Who is the squadron commander and executive officer for each squad? Again, these are my favorite things. Got a couple other questions here. Don't know if I'm going to get into those, but let's just, let's go with Squadron commander and executive officer for the Chevy X-Wing squad, since alphabetically C comes before H. Then we'll go to Honda. Okay, squadron commander. Now this is going to be good. Uh, Not my answer, but just 
looking through this is going to be good. Uh, we know my answers are going to be garbage, but that's why we do the show. So you can tell me they're garbage and tell me how your idea is better. It's kind of how the thing works. Squadron commander. You didn't give me any limitations. Um, so you said driver didn't necessarily say active driver. So I, I think that might open up retired driver, possibly team owner, former driver. Let's see. Squadron commander. Yeah, I'm looking through the current driver rotation. Again, there are, yeah, there are a lot of alpha male types, potentially alpha female types. If we had women full time in the series, um, that become that alpha in the car. I don't think a squadron commander though fits that profile, right? Squadron commander a director, someone that is declarative, stands up, rallies those X-Wing pilots and crafts the battle plan. And uh, uh, I'm not seeing that among many on the driver front here, active IndyCar driver front. So that would maybe push me to X-Driver team owner on the Chevy side. We're kind of, I think, Ryan, we kind of have to go with the obvious answer here, right? It's not A.J. Foyt. A.J.'s a fighter. I don't know about, you know, squadron leader. Trevor Carlin among Chevy? Trevor is a lover, not a fighter. He's a fighter, but not in this kind of squadron commander. Uh, Dragon Speed? Lovers. Uh, Ed Carpenter Racing? lover it's got to be roger penske right i mean he is the captain right Uh, squadron commander anyways as for their xo who would be roger's xo for uh, the chevy bowtie x-wing squad i don't want to just go penske you know let's just say tim cindrick that structure is already in place who would be his xo among the X-Wings. Huh. All right, we're going to draft from another Chevy team. It's going to be Gilles DeFerrin. All right, there's still links to Penske. Two-time kart champion. 2013, 2013, good Lord, that'd be funny. 2003 Indy 500 winner for RP. I think he's he's in a definite XO there. He, he's a guy with a pl- carry out the plans, but also shape the plans. Got some ideas, probably usurp uh, RP at some points in time. Yeah, I think I'm going to go with Gilles. As for the Honda side, Squadron Commander. All right. I know that, you know, Brian Hunter Ray, Captain America, stereotypes. uh, uh, He could probably actually do that. I think we have the XO. XO, I think, would be Alexander Rossi. He, there's some OCD there. There's a very, you know, when you tie the shoes, uh, the, the laces, there must be an exact length to each one. And if not, you're going to keep tying and retying and, you know, and so on. Uh, just there, there's something about carrying out commands explicitly that seems to fit Rossi. As for his 
squadron commander though on the honda x-wing group who all right again let's look to the the x driver team owners michael andretti maybe maybe uh chip ganassi I don't know if we need to look any further than Chip Ganassi, right? That that's a that's a that's a man barking orders. That is a man who likes winners. That is a man with a plan, like his rival, his squadron commander rival Roger Penske, proven master of strategy, right? So I'm kind of seeing those two options right there. So I think Chevy, we're definitely talking RP as a commander. DeFerrin is the XO, but kind of getting out of hand a little bit. You know, that, that that's a that's a pony that doesn't like being bridled. So not sure how that's going to work out, but that's at least what I'm thinking now. On the Honda side, Ryan, for sure, going to go with Chip Ganassi, Floyd Chip Ganassi as the squadron commander among the Honda TIE Fighters. Uh, and then certainly Alexander Rossi to follow. Yeah, I think he's going to be the squeaky clean XO that frankly, and this almost happened or they hope to make it happen. I could see him. I could see RP going after Rossi as his XO. So yeah, you have another question here. Who gets shot down first? Well, so if we're talking Chevy shooting down a Honda, TIE fighter. Well, okay. I mean, some of these answers are going to be too obvious, right? I mean, that's the thing. And some of y'all gave me grief because my answers for who would be cast in the IndyCar movie weren't the obvious ones. Vin Diesel is Tony Kanon. Everyone said that forever, right? Come on. If all you can do is come up with the thing everybody knows, it's not really an answer. Put a little bit of thought into it. That's why I went with The Rock, I think. This still may have been bad. But I'm kind of faced with some of these things here, right? So who would the Chevy team shoot down first among the Honda team? I mean, you could maybe say Hunter Ray, just because we know the cartoon anvil falls on him all the time. He'd probably get hit by, quote, space debris. You know, there'd be some sort of meteor that that blasts through his whatever propulsion motor and he's sitting there just floating in space uh smoking and steaming again i don't know that's an answer maybe not a good one some of the obvious ones i mean you'd you'd have to say marco andretti right i mean that that maybe that might be the default answer uh boy if i was going to be a real jerk i'd name a couple others who don't have drives right now but that that wouldn't be good I mean, if we want to just continue following stereotypes, there might be a concern that if Takuma Sato was a Honda TIE fighter pilot, he'd run into one of the Chevy TIE fighters and kind of take himself out. But, you know, yeah, the question here is who gets shot down first. So that's more defeat by bumbling than anything. Yeah, I think we're going to have to go with Marco. I mean, come on. Uh, I don't know who else would be first out. Uh, among the Honda squad, vice versa, Honda shooting down Chevy. Oh, all right. That's, that's maybe not as easy or is it? I don't know. Um, 
Jeez, it's really hard to not just be a total a-hole here. Uh, boy, who would be prone among the Chevy drivers? I mean, going with a small team, that'd be, you know, that'd be too easy, right? Kyle Kaiser gets knocked out. Well, come on. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of drawing a blank here. Part of me wants to say Max Chilton, but depending upon the battle, whether it's a circular battle or one that navigates left and right, he may not participate in that battle. I don't know. Where else? I mean, if I'm just looking at where we are in the points, I'd have to say it'd probably be Max. I'm sorry. Sorry, Max. If we're at least using 2019 results, yeah, it's probably Max. I don't know why I'm saying sorry. The guy's like a billionaire and has a pretty amazing life. And uh, so, yeah, but at least on my stupid little podcast, that's what came to mind right here. Going to go to Sean Lee on a third engine manufacturer with the Ferrari Chrysler company Ferrari Fiat Chrysler company merging with Peugeot uh, with the hope to introduce French cars back to America. How about a Citroën entry? I'd love it. Um, I can't see how that would happen, but I love the idea, Sean. Mike Stoops, you got a question here that I love when I get items like these because it makes me realize that Either I wasn't thinking about this and should actually write about it or had been thinking something similar and the fact that it was sent in as a question maybe solidifies the fact that it needs to become a print topic. And yours is one of those. It says, there seems to be a lot of captains at spam. Schmidt, Peterson, Brown, Arrow, too many? Could this be too complex of an arrangement to be successful? Well... You've mentioned two team owners in Sam Schmidt and Rick Peterson. You've mentioned Zach Brown, not an owner of anything with the team, but we could just call him a team principal since McLaren is engaged with the S and the P. You've mentioned Arrow, who we've known, but definitely either learned or or had reinforced how much of a say they have in the decision-making process on many things. Then we'll also throw in Gilles DeFerrin, sporting director at McLaren, who is meant to be Zach's kind of on-the-ground person, day-to-day person from McLaren's side. Then we have Taylor Kyle, who is SPs, now SPAMs, but uh, was promoted to general manager have the team at the beginning of the year or coming into the 2019 season. So you've listed Schmidt, Peterson, Brown, and Arrow, and we need to add in DeFerrin and Kyle. I think what you have mentioned here in terms of complexities, I think that is going to be the area where if things do not get super happy, if things go in a bad direction, This is the thing that stands out as the item they all know they need to be on top of, manage, make sure, doesn't go south. These are the things they know. This is the absolute area where things fall apart. It's not because Pato will forget how to drive or Askew will have a bad season. It's 
two owners, one partner. Interests split across two teams, McLaren Racing and SP, Aero SPM. It is a general manager on the Aero SPM side. It's a sporting director on the McLaren side. It's McLaren, it's, I'm sorry, Aero in the middle, knowing that Aero sponsors both this IndyCar team and Brown's team that Brown runs in Formula One, McLaren. This is just where we would see, and I know I'm overstating the obvious, but this is the place, Mike, where, to your question and your concern, um, there would certainly be possibilities of things going sideways, man. Um, You've heard me say pretty much since this was announced, I don't foresee this lasting too long. Will that short time span be a result of things blowing up or will this accelerated timeline for McLaren racing venturing off onto their own, just be a case of, Hey, we wanted to walk in IndyCar before we ran. We appreciate working with Sam and Rick and Taylor in helping us to walk. We're ready to run. Wish you the best of luck. And now we're going to be direct rivals with you. Pick one of those two things. It's going to happen. You would hope it's the latter, the more positive scenario. But this is this is what is worthy of a deeper uh, insight and analysis piece on Racer Mike. How do you not just manage the team, but manage personalities, expectations, manage power, distribution of power? How is power wielded? If among all the names I've mentioned says we should do A, The others, or most of the others, say, hell no, we need to do B. Within all those names, is the one saying we must do A? Do they not just have the agreed-upon power, but do they have the tools to say, well, it's nice of you all to say, we're not doing my deal, we're doing yours, but guess what? Here's the lever of power and influence I can pull to make my thing happen that's where things start to break down. That's why you tend not to see more than two partners involved in a race team. I realize that there are examples. <laughs> Marco Andretti's entry seems to have 19 team owners and or partners on it. I get that. But do we really think that beyond Brian Herta and Michael Andretti, that there are others with major voices, major votes on how that entry is run? No. Here, We already have an S and a P. They seem to work well together. We've now inserted a B and a GDF and a TK and an A, and we've inserted all kinds of things. It will be incumbent upon Taylor, who I rate highly. Think he's just, he's awesome. Will it be incumbent upon Taylor from the, just say the legacy side of this relationship, one who's already been in place before McLaren came along as a general manager. Will it be incumbent upon Taylor to keep not only the ship pointed in the right direction from a competition standpoint, but act within, work within any little leaks that might spring up, plug those things. Will he be, you know, walled off in some cases by who knows who. 
Uh, will DeFerrin, you know, DeFerrin needs to do the same thing. Absolutely keep everyone working together for their mutual benefit. That's going to be the test. Uh, I'd say, will Pato be fast? Will Oscar be fast? I just said Oscar. I should have said Oliver, but we'll call him Oscar Askew for now on because why not? Um, Will Oliver and Patricio have a successful year? I think so. A lot of that's dictated by off-season R&D, finding things to make the cars go quickly, who they hire and or continue to work with on the engineering front. Some of these things are pretty straightforward. If you hire the best people or the best people you can on the engineering side, you come up with a good development plan, you produce those items, go to the races, conduct the on-track portion of what you do in a straightforward and proven manner using proven practices, you should have a fairly good season. It's where the practices part can start to stray where potential for issues jump out. Oh, that's how you debrief? That's how you think we should sit down and do it? Well, no, we should do this the other way. We do it this way. We've done it this way. How does that get resolved? Um, Anyways, there are more possibilities for things going wrong than right when you have this number of people involved. Mike, as you've rightly pointed out, I hope that there are no issues, but this will be the thing that the managers will need to put at or near, if not at the absolute top of their priority list. On the surface, it seems like there's going to be a fairly definitive end date to this because keeping all the names and all the parties happy in line and pulling together, it, it has nothing to do with a Taylor or a Gilles. Just there's a reason why you don't see Team Penske, Smith, Johnson, Jefferson, Gonzalez, etc., etc., etc. Uh That's a ship with a clear leader, a clear number two, clear number three, and yeah, there we go. Let's go, where should we go? Ron Terpstra, you're back. Well, you never left. You're always here. Bit of a rant. Suspect dampers. When I go to the track and sit in the stands, I definitely can tell what kind of dampers everyone's running. Love a little bit of sarcasm here. He says, uh, it's clear how the teams have distinguished themselves and made unique fingerprints on the series. They can't make them spec, though. He says, I won't be able to tell which car is which if they have all the same suspension travel characteristics. All that money spent on distu- distinguishing themselves wasted. In all seriousness, the $6 million needed to run a team. What does that number change to if there's no open development options on the new car? Hard to say because I don't know what the new car is going to cost. We don't know what it's going to be. I know that we believe it's going to be a hybrid and it's going to be aero screened and it's going to be lighter and faster and all. It's We believe it's going to be all kinds of things. Don't know exactly what it is yet. If we do lock down all development, which would be pretty interesting, we'd be going right back almost to where we were in 2012, although dampers were open back then. But I I don't know what that number would be. 
And the reason I say that, Ryan, is certainly that number is going to be $6 million or more per entry in that first year or two, if not three, as teams buy cars, amortize them over three to five years. Three is what I hear most teams tend to do. And it's not just going to be the cars themselves. It's going to be extras, spare bodywork, spare radiators, spare transmissions, spare this, spare that. It's a lot of money that's going to be spent. Don't really know how much true carryover from the current car to the new car will take place. So it's hard to say. I don't expect the number to be lower. That's for sure. If IndyCar does go through with its hybrid powertrain, I don't expect the engine leases to be smaller, provided the electric kinetic energy recovery systems are packaged in as part of that lease number. Yeah, so the thing that, here's the hard workaround. Formula One's tried to do it. I think it's been successful. I don't know if it has. I haven't spent a lot of time looking into it yet. You can lock down all areas of open development on the vehicle. Spec dampers, gone. Saving money there, great. What teams will then do, since they cannot spend money to make unique go-fast parts on the car that suit their desires, that money just gets spent, if not more, in off-track testing. Because we've also had track testing dialed down. The amount of days allowed just seems to get smaller and smaller every year. What teams do is say, okay, well, if we can't really change anything on the car and we have very few days we can actually go test this vehicle in the real world, we are going to over-provision our money on off-track testing, virtual testing, simulation, uh, actual whether it's the driver in the loop system, the big hydraulic ram, electric ram sitting, moving around in the fake cockpit driving. And whether you have that simulation or the, the shorter sim, which is what's referred to using software, actual software computation of setup changes. You have all the other things that you might've heard about the seven post shaker rigs, uh, the gearbox dynos and damper dynos and wind tunnel time and all of these things. That's where the money ends up getting spent. So point being, Formula One's come up with a, you can only do so many hours of computational fluid dynamics and we're going to monitor your servers and how many hours they get used. And they've tried to come up with ways to limit the off-track testing to bring Budgets down, physical exhaustion down of the people performing those tests. Maybe IndyCar could consider something like that as well, Ryan. But that is what would be needed. Because you can lock down the car and say, you can't even look at it. (laughs) There's a penalty if you do. Don't touch it. Don't look at it. Period. Great. We're going to save money on the car. Awesome. What happens in racing? It's a competition. Who can go faster than the others? Well, If you're not allowed to use the vehicle and the components on the vehicle to achieve that means, and you're not allowed to go and run it on track and figure these things out in a live and dynamic situation the way we used to, that competition still exists. It just gets taken off track. 
And so while that R&D effort might change to what we from what we have today, keep in mind that it's not just a case of, oh, we're going to go to the wind tunnel. Or, oh, we're going to invest more in our SIM program. It's how many big brain engineer PhD types who some of you might never see, <laughs> who never go to the track or rarely go to the track, but how many people do we need to hire to facilitate these things? You can look at the most at most of the team structures and say, oh, there's you know, Andretti Autosports technical director, Eric Bretzman. He's super smart. He knows everything. He has run and led all of these types of things, wind tunnel programs, SIM, CFD, blah, blah, blah. All key, boy, he can come up with a lot of great ideas. And they have five full-time race engineers, plus the sixth that they provisioned to Meyer Shank Racing. It's a lot of smart people, a lot of ideas. Some of them, and they have assistant engineers, and those assistant engineers are often the ones working on the damper dyno and doing yada yada and we're running sim and so got understand teams will definitely rely heavily on the folks they currently have on staff but if we do get to a place where the cars are specky spec spec don't look at them don't touch them guarantee you the bigger teams some whom already have these dedicated folks who do nothing but just again calling it off-track testing more of those folks will be hired. So at significant cost, you say, all right, all we're doing is move. It's a shell game. You're just moving things around on the table. All right, well, we've taken that away, but well, we've pushed it over here, pushed it over there. If and when IndyCar decides it wants to get to a place where the car is totally spec and they insert monitoring methods and limitations on off-track testing could potentially see costs coming down. After that, I'm not exactly sure where they go next, Ryan. Let's go to my man, J.J. Gertler. says, I know we'd rather talk about spring rates and wicker bills. Let's call those gurney flaps. And helmet designs, but it's not enough to be a driver anymore. You have to be a marketer. A couple of episodes ago, there was a discussion of whether Chevrolet did enough, quote, activation around their races. Can you talk about engagement and activation and some of these basic marketing terms for those of us who are more accustomed to breathing through Nomex? Just a little primer on how it all works and what those terms even mean seems English not. Um, yeah, of course. So the activation side, JJ, and for those who are curious as well, that is another way of saying how do you promote the thing you are involved in? If we think about Chevy in that comment there, that I forget who sent that in. So they obviously provide engines in the IndyCar series. They subsidize those engines to a, a greater degree than they are comfortable, anyone's comfortable doing, Honda as well. So it's not unique to Chevy, but... They invest money in IndyCar through offsetting the engine lease costs by, I don't know what the percentage is now. It used to be almost half. Whatever teams spent per lease, about 50% of that was actually uh, covered, ended up being money that uh, was handled by Chevy, just offsetting that and Honda as well. 
So that's a place where you would say, all right, well, that's millions of dollars. We've had Chevrolet sponsor races, had Chevrolet do ad campaigns, whether it might be TV, print, web. Not so much sure about Chevy in a long time on the TV side, but nonetheless, specific to IndyCar at least, but would not be a surprise at all during an IndyCar broadcast to see a Chevrolet ad, Honda ad as well, Firestone ads. These are things that are paid for by the brand to let folks know, hey, we're here, we do something, and or we're investing to make this thing happen. Could also be more in the promotional material side. Hey, buy your Team Chevy t-shirt or hat or something. Here are some hero cards, some giveaways, some stickers. Here's a program, right? We helped fund some stories or bought some pages for advertisements or something in the program. Uh, I know if I think of my long-term client, Racer Magazine, Chevrolet's been pretty amazing in hiring Racer, the special projects division, to do a preseason aspect of the magazine, right? There's the whole Chevy section. We've seen that when they've had pretty amazing years in terms of winning not just IndyCar, but maybe it's IMSA, maybe it's NASCAR, maybe it's whatever, but multiple championships doing some sort of special edition postseason. Uh, whether it comes in a little poly bag where you get your issue of Racer Magazine, plus there's the separate chevrolet issue or it's maybe inverted sometimes i've seen that done it's spending additional money to support the sport to drive awareness to its participation in the sport that's the the general activation that takes place odd to think but it does kind of sort of need to happen I mean, those things are needed. Might think, well, hey, if they're spending money to make engines happen or otherwise, isn't that enough? Well, not necessarily. And would that be considered a sufficient level of involvement or investment? If a major auto manufacturer is going to do, going to do this, going to go to these efforts, going to make this happen, you would think they would want to let the world know that they're doing it. And it's not just the hardcore fans. Say most people that show up for a race would know that Chevy and Honda are involved. Therefore, Chevy or Honda would power all the cars that they're looking at. Anything more, though? Well, that's the activation side. That is every year at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for the last, I don't know how many years, there's been a large Chevrolet display with, what, four or five of its current models, some of its race cars, some engines on a stand. Hasn't always been the case, but they've often had a separate trailer, kind of pull-out trailer, some sort of stage where they can, on a daily basis, have Chevy IndyCar drivers and executives host, you know, cool little things, got the microphones and speaker system and put on a show in front of the fans. 
they pay, I don't know what the number is, but I can guarantee it's not a small one to rent that space to promote their vehicles, link back to what they're doing in IndyCar at the Indy 500. That's part of it. Uh, or I shouldn't say part of it. That's a big part of it. So if we're just talking some of the areas where I've heard criticisms, Honda has, I think, pretty much all along in this new era, engine formula era since 2012, paid the money to have their hospitality coach and chefs and support staff go to every race. At those races, they then need to pay for the real estate that the hospitality motor coach sits on and the food and whatever travel is involved for the people that come and and support all of that. Chevy has not. Chevy has, has not had their own hospitality. It's been funny to watch Dario Franchitti, for example. Huge, lifelong friend of Honda. I believe all of his championships, Indy 500s, all that came with Honda. Chip Ganassi Racing moved to Chevy. Well, while wearing his Ganassi (laughs) polo shirt, with a bow tie, you guarantee who you saw every morning at Honda Hospitality to grab breakfast. And, you know, he'd walk towards the entry and say hello and kind of kindly, jokingly cover up the bow tie on his shirt and walk in. And, you know, that's because that's not something Chevy had to offer. They did not see value in paying money to have a, uh, call it inside baseball, hospitality solution to feed members of the media, drivers if needed, keeping in mind that not every team has a hospitality thing. So for some of the smaller teams, it's truly, hey, could someone grab some Subway sandwiches for lunch or whatever? Chevy said, you know, of the things we value activation-wise, we would not see this as an expenditure that fit. So haven't done it. I've listened to many members of the media complain. Oh, uh, uh. I don't know. I mean, obviously, if you've seen me, you know that I like food, but I've never considered Honda or Chevy or Firestone or Cooper or anyone as being responsible to put food in my belly. I don't work for them. Uh, If they're offering it, well, that's pretty nice. Doesn't mean, you know, doesn't mean that I should still be going there for a free meal. Uh, Yet, there are some who have an absolute belief that they are owed something or deserve something and should be treated as special. All right, give me cool. That's their thing. Uh, just a little sidebar, and I don't know, maybe it's just me being stupid, but I get grief from Honda uh, on a semi-regular basis because when I do show up, it's, hey, oh, I thought you thought forgot we existed. I'm like, no, love you guys, you know. Um, I just, I don't know. It, You've heard me mention this before, probably. I just feel weird. Uh, I prefer to bring my own food to the track and or if I know that there are vendors at the track selling something that gets the thumbs up, I'll look forward to that. But yeah, um, just, I don't know. If Chevy did have one, I would probably feel more comfortable in 
going and having breakfast at Chevy, maybe lunch at Honda, and just there being equal representation. So anyways, that's a little sidebar that doesn't mean anything, JJ, but I thought I'd throw it in. Why? I don't know. Uh, We're going to go to Jordan Darwin. He says, Marshall, do you think Penske would be willing to concede some of his competitive advantages in the current rules for the betterment of the IndyCar series overall? Hashtag me personally. I think so. I kind of thought you hinted at something similar last week. Uh, If I did hint at that, Jordan, it's my fault. Uh, What I meant was the exact opposite. No, at no point in time would Roger Penske ever try less hard to beat his rivals, whether he owns the series in which he competes or not. I would say he's in the auto industry, right? He's one of the biggest fish in the auto industry. I haven't read a lot of stories of late that says the auto industry is super awesome and healthy. I can't think of any scenario where Roger would try to sell fewer cars at a specific line of dealerships that he owns. Maybe that brand is dominating at to the detriment of another brand. I can't imagine how he would ever think, well, I'm going to try and do less here to help a rival. Uh, I believe he's fairly linear in give it your best, do your best, and the strongest will survive. Obviously, it's in his best interest for IndyCar to survive, but I can't imagine he has ever had the thought of, huh, now that I own it, I wonder if we should let up a little bit. I I can never see that happening while that man uh, is alive and competing. All right, we're not too far away from our kind of sort of self-imposed two-hour time limit. It's 2.33 right now. Got that 3 o'clock call coming up, so let me see what I can do to blast through as many as I can to close out here. Going to Reddit, Hitoroki 2, a couple questions if you don't mind answering them. Do you see McLaren's involvement in IndyCar being long-term? Are they more goal-oriented? What I mean is, let's say McLaren wins the IndyCar Championship and or the Indy 500 in the next three to five years. Do you think they'll leave because their goals were met, or will they stay for the long run? As long as Zach Brown is the CEO at McLaren Racing, I would expect them to be an IndyCar. If and when... He leaves or is moved to a non-executive decision-making role where he can say, we are playing an IndyCar. I think there would be very real concerns that their involvement would come to an end. Also says, we know that Piggott was let go by ECR, and I know you said in another podcast that there were some internal issues within the team. It seemed to be Piggott was improving, but either qualified well only to fall back qualified poorly only to move up there was no consistency my question is was Piggott let go due to performance issues internal issues within the team was it all about money and sponsors and also says a very kind thanks for all you do for the IndyCar IndyCar community well it's kind of you to say keep in mind I'm part of the community just as you are and all of everyone who might be listening happens to be uh definitely money I would be remiss in saying that if we're talking about Spencer Piggott, the guy who had more than one podium and 52 starts for the team, 
maybe there would be uh, it would be harder to come to the decision that they did. It's definitely a well, it wasn't really made public in terms of a story or a report or a video or whatever. It is known that uh, there was an engineering disconnect within the program during the year. Uh, a little bit of, I don't want to say warring factions, but more of FU, we're doing our own thing, kind of thing. Uh, and I've heard about that from multiple people. Um, those things can be resolved, but that would certainly undermine any driver's ability to be consistently fast. If you have a two-car team that is acting like two one-car teams, you are going to get to the faster setups at a slower rate you're not going to be as far along by the time qualifying comes as the other teams at most rounds uh, just the whole reason to have multiple cars beyond hopefully increased budget increased chances of winning is to be faster and more efficient as an organization on the performance front when you sever that when you split that in half again it takes longer to get there so i think we saw some of that throughout the year too Cannot hang all of this, even much of this, on Spencer. The truth is he was hired as the someone that they hoped would be capable of continuing what Joseph Newgarden achieved with Jeremy Millis after Jeremy and good old Noogie Noog left following the 2016 season. Uh... That's a pretty magic combination. And Spencer coming in more or less as a rookie, knowing that Joseph was leaving after, what, five, six years? Whatever the exact number was. I mean, he was pretty far along and developed as a driver, plus he had an amazing race engineer in Jeremy. This was just true. You know, these guys were striking hard as Ed Carpenter racing, challenging for the championship bringing in a kid who's shown immense promise but is still at the start of his learning curve, you know, let's say a 2012 version of Joseph Newgarden. Um, You know, Joseph showed glimmers in his first season or two uh, when he had, I think, Nathan O'Rourke was his race engineer, but there was nothing that made us say, ooh, future champion. Potential, sure, knowing, owing to his his success in Indy Lights, but... There's nobody that said, oh, yeah, Penske's going to hire him. He's going to have two championships by 2019. Um, We can look at Spencer and say, yeah, came out of lights, came out of the road to India as just a monster. Didn't necessarily land with Ed Carpenter racing at the right time. Didn't necessarily have this magic bond on the engineering front like Joseph and Jeremy definitely saw some turnover on the engineering front there um you know this has not been the the strongest period for ecr and so this year finally it looked like things were starting to go in a much stronger direction spencer made some mistakes though right things you go oh man really wish wish that hadn't happened because you'd have had better results to show it's a hard situation i don't know well, let, let me say this. I think if Spencer were to return next year to the team, I think that we could see someone who had three, maybe four podiums by the end of the year. Uh, it really did feel to me like they were on the cusp of, if they weren't going to turn the page next year, then it was never going to happen. 
Uh, I lament the fact that we're not going to find out. Flip side to this, we know that the team needs money. The team has not been flush with cash for a little while. I've heard that what the VK sponsorship package is is not crazy dollars, but it's enough. I just have a feeling that Marinus might prove to be special rather quickly. If he doesn't, and that completely defies my expectation, it's going to be really hard for the Carpenter team to explain that one away. They are going to need, like the Foyt program, like a few others, to have a really hard look at their construction, how they are put together, and if this is getting the most out of themselves. The very same thing, I would say, that the leaders in this topic of needing to revamp, question, rebuild, being Aero SPM, now Aero McLaren SP. They got the least out of the most, if we're talking financially, last year for sure. The ECR team, we know that they have not been playing with anything like the kind of budget that they want or need. I'm hoping, hoping, maybe whatever Renus' sponsors might be able to offer can help get them closer to a happy point. And could that be the thing that allows them to be a more consistent participant in the top 10, top 5, top something? The other entry, uh, driven by Ed Jones last year, pretty much a non-factor the entire time. One or two bright spots, but yeah, uh, as a whole, that organization needs to go up. Uh, Let's go to 82 GMC Jimmy. Says Marshall, supposing McLaren finds success fairly quickly in IndyCar, be it in this partnership and or breaking off into their own independent team. What are the chances there would be an increase in IndyCar involvement from other teams associated with Formula One? I would say none. I would say that the mindset and general acknowledgement of ego in Formula One would be such where most teams would expect McLaren to come into IndyCar and move straight to the top. Because while McLaren, although they're now, again, moving pretty much closer to the top in Formula One than they have been. They've had a pretty pretty great year by comparison to where they've been just as recently as 2018. I think most F1 teams would look at McLaren, maybe the month of May being forgotten about, but I would say most folks in F1 would look at McLaren and say, hey, if these are the same people that play in F1, more or less dedicating themselves to IndyCar, they should just clean up. McLaren's going to find that that's not the case. Even if they went fully independent and spent plenty and it was their Formula One team level of everything, yeah, I think they're going to find out quickly that Roger Penske, Michael Andretti, Chip Ganassi, there's a reason why those are the recognized big three and why they're the ones that everyone guns for. And I don't care if, well, granted, unless McLaren spent F1 level dollars, to try and beat IndyCar teams, ain't happening. So I think with all that said, 
I don't think any F1 teams are going to look to McLaren and use that as any kind of thing to consider coming over here. Second, which is an angle, McLaren Racing, which is a separate entity than the McLaren Automobile side, McLaren Cars, although they are separate, there is actual brand value in having McLaren involved in IndyCar, using their involvement here, now touring the country to 17 event or. 16, what, 17 races across 16 events. Trying to keep in mind the Detroit doubleheader. There's 16 venues now throughout the year where McLaren dealers, McLaren owners, McLaren whatever, there's a a good embedded way for McLaren to promote and amplify their road car business. So that's the thing where I think beyond just liking racing and Zach Brown's love for this, there's a business case that can be stated too to entertain and hopefully sell more mclarens by bringing folks out at least to look at the indycar stuff they're doing in the states knowing that the u.s is a pretty big market for their automobile sales well you could say well ferrari they sell a lot of cars here too aren't they here Eh, that's not who they are renault they're not selling here yet would love to see it mercedes yeah, there are those rumors about Roger buying the Mercedes F1 team, which he's not. Um, they once played here. They don't. Uh, I wish they would. They do sell a lot of sports cars, purebred racing, not purebred, racing sports cars. Buy your production-based GT3 model, go run it in IMSA. GT4, run it in IMSA as well, or World Challenge. They just haven't had the budgetary appetite or competitive appetite to do anything in America for a good while now that involves turning up to compete head-to-head. Selling sports cars to sports car teams or gentlemen, gentlewomen, drivers, owners, whatever, to play, great. There's a profit center there. Actual, we're going to set money aside, build our best version of whatever, and go head-to-head. Hasn't been something they've wanted to do here in the U.S. for a while, unfortunately. Let's close the Reddit questions from L. Jones Arena. Says, with Spam switching to Chevy engines, does this open up possibilities for a team like Carlin to move to a Honda lease? How long do engine leases usually last? And how late in the offseason could this kind of change happen? Great questions. Can't answer all of this because I have some knowledge of some things related to some of the questions you've asked, and I for reasons I won't get into, can't mention it now. At least for what I read from Honda, they weren't really looking to add a bunch of extra leases. The topic of could the freed up two leases from Aero Aero SP, one of these days I'm going to remember all this stuff, Aero SP, we know that Andretti has taken the Steinbrenner Harding lease. So that's a fifth right there. It's not adding. I realize they're just bringing that into their tent. Um, we know that with Meyer Shank being there, that's one that they already had. So that's moving though from part-time to full-time. So that could be considered maybe part of the something provision wise uh, used from, Spam no longer being in the Honda camp. We know that Ganassi has added one car. 
that wasn't on the grid. New entry, this being a third car for Marcus Erickson, X Spam. I don't know if they're really looking to do much more than that. So that's kind of one and a half ish. And I'm drawing a blank. If there's any other new, sorry, I am a little sleep deprived. We know that Ray Hall wants to get to a third. So that could be one that they're maybe holding out for. Um, but beyond that, I don't really know of any others in terms of true expansion beyond what we know right now. Uh, let's see, as I tab back, where else should we go in the somewhat limited time we have left? We are at about, uh, we might be just over the two hour mark. So we're into overtime. I've got 10 minutes or so until I got to do that call. Let's see. Uh, Erica Rosa. Hi, Erica. I'm not sure if you sent in a question before. If you have, I apologize for forgetting. So it's not a question, but follow up from the listener Q and a last week. There are many inquiring about concerns, possible concerns, about conflicts of interest. Now that Penske owns a series and uh, IMS while also owning a team, he says you gave a history lesson on Tony George and vision racing, Jerry Forsyth, Kevin Kalkovan owning teams in the champ car era. No concern then. So it got me to thinking about what's different today. She says for hashtag me personally. Thanks for using that Erica. Uh, it's due to the time we're living in where success and wealth are at best scrutinized and at worst vilified. Media plays a role in this. As an example, there were certain motorsports writers who had to use the descriptive, quote, billionaire before Mr. Penske's name in each headline and article. So it's too bad for a racing fan going on 30 years now. No news has ever made me excited for the future of IndyCar. Yeah, I. that's a perfect angle, Erica, that I'd did not consider that maybe it's Roger's wealth and or something along those lines being the a worrying item. Could the super rich guy maybe use that wealth and influence to manipulate things to his favor? I guess he could try just, it's going to be a test of Jay Fry and everyone else involved on the rule side the technical side, uh, it's really, you know, it's going to be incumbent upon them, as I use incumbent for the second or third time this episode, to make sure that if Roger and or his team had a desire to circumvent the rules, to make sure that those things do not happen. Uh, and then there's maybe another thing too, right? What if it's a call, right? Hey, we see, I mean, what, last weekend, the whole big thing was how in the... Baltimore Ravens, and why am I forgetting who they played game? Was it the Texans? No. Anyways, how did the referees just miss the most obvious pass interference call ever in the end zone? If we see a case where a Penske driver does something that is just blatant and there's no penalty called. I mean, these are the kinds of things where race director Kyle Novak I don't know how the discussions are held. And what I'm saying, it does not call his integrity into question at all, but there are going to have to be conversations about if it's a 50-50 call about did this Penske driver block a person or whatever, something where a penalty could be passed down. There's going to have to be a conversation about, ooh, any time a Penske driver does something that is questionable, 
do we need to automatically drop the hammer on them to make sure people know that we are totally, actually, I was going to say impartial. That would be the opposite of impartial. If there's any 50-50 calls and it doesn't go against Penske, I think those who are suspect, those team owners and those fans who are asking, ah, impartiality, conflict of interest, ah, see, he didn't get the call. They didn't, they didn't do anything. All right, you know, the fix is in. I wonder, again, this is a, maybe a good question to ask. I don't know. I'm going to write this down. Thanks for, the que- thanks for the story topic here, Erica, that I hadn't thought of before you uh, sent in this question. Is this something that IndyCar needs to actively think about? Uh, how do you manage a race where, in so many instances, judgment calls are required from an officiating standpoint? Um, I know that IndyCar publishes a officiating guideline. You know, pick whatever it is. If you have an improper restart and pull ahead of whatever or pass before this thing, the penalty is this. There's some things that are just super obvious. Hey, speeding on pit lane. The radar gun said this number. It's above the number you're allowed to go. Boom, penalty. Those, I think, are pretty normal. All right, hey, clearly the person jumped the restart, sped on pit lane, ran over pit equipment. You know, there's some things that I would say are, are less judgment calls than just clear, obvious things that lead to a pre-established penalty. Then there are some things where you go blocking. Did this happen? Did it not happen? Did this person impede, truly impede? Did they not? It's the gray areas where, from an officiating standpoint, um, if Penske drivers are involved, I think we're I think we're going to have to see what they might do, how they might do it. Uh, if there's going to be a sorry, Roger in the best interest of the sport to make sure no one questions the integrity. Uh, We might, your guys that might've gotten the benefit of the call before, maybe they won't now because we can't let folks think that the guy who owns the series and has cars in it, who's super crazy wealthy and in theory, maybe has more influence than anyone ever in terms of owning the series or a racing series. Got to make sure folks don't believe that there's anything funky, wonky, or underhanded taking place. Could that then lead the Penske drivers themselves? These are all theoreticals, which could mean nothing, but could the Penske drivers be held to a higher level of, I'll just say cleanliness in their driving by the team, knowing that, hey, don't get yourself into a judgment. It's the old boxing and MMA thing. Look, don't don't send this to the judges. Don't leave it up to the judges to decide who the winner or loser was. Uh, stay out of that gray area because you might not like the outcome. Could this be something? Again, I don't think we'd get there, but those are the things that I think might be fascinating to explore. And I'll have to ask Jay Fry and Kyle Novak how they might approach them. Uh, Don Gregory, you say, what's your all-time favorite race car of the past? Oh, that that's that's a that's a the cruelest question I've gotten in a long time, Don. My friend, I have fifty, if not a hundred. Uh, I can't point to one. I can point to a couple that I love, and sometimes it changes. 
if I just had to say the one that comes to mind first more often than the others, it would be the aforementioned 1967 Eagle Formula One car that the Big Eagle drove to win at the Belgian Grand Prix. A Westlake, there's no T, W-E-S, Westlake V12, glorious sound, probably the most beautiful Formula One car, maybe even most beautiful open-wheel car ever made. First all-American team entry car driver on Goodyear tires as well, American tires, all-American everything to win a Formula One race. It's, <laughs> I end up looking like Rodan's sculpture of The Thinker when I have the the pleasure of seeing the car in person because it's just captivating. Let's see. Da, da, da. Tony Mueller, you sent in a couple questions. Uh, let me see if I can get to... Let's see if I can get through this one as quickly as I can, knowing that i got to make a call here in just a couple of minutes. says, talked a lot about the conflict of interest regarding Penske's purchase IMS. I like this question. That's why I wanted to try and get to it. I agree with almost everything you said about it. However, most of your explanations refer to a hypothetical scenario where Penske would try to bend or break existing rules. You commented on a hypothetical scenario dealing with the actual creation of the rules that might be more beneficial to his team than others. Or I'm sorry, you said, can you comment on that? Can you, uh, for example, reassure me that Penske won't hire a team of 50 experienced brake developing engineers next week and announce in February of 21 that custom brakes will be legal starting in March of 21? Well, I don't know if I can reassure you, Tony. I can say this for sure. You know that I just put up a story from a conversation and interview with Michael Andretti a week or two ago about this purchase. And one of his comments being, I really want to go back to a franchise system like we had in cart, like they currently have in formula E and F1 where it's something where there's a sanctioning body that says you can or can't participate. There's a limited number of entries available in the racing series. And therefore, if you have one, there's an established value in it. So for, if you want to sell it, we got the the key to a very exclusive door to get through. Therefore, that's where the value is generated. We don't have that in IndyCar, as he points out. And I don't necessarily agree with Michael's, I want to be franchise and, and be the gatekeepers to who can or can't come in. But right now, Tony, anyone can buy an IndyCar. Anyone can come play. If they have the money, they can get engine leases and all that kind of stuff. But it's open. That means there's no senior business structure, binding everyone together. The only thing that binds IndyCar team owners to the series is the signing of a leadership circle contract. That obligates them to turn up to every round in order to get that million-ish dollars. They don't turn up. They don't get all the money. It's not the end of the world. It's a million bucks. I know to you and I, it's a lot of money, but to them, it's not. But that's the only thing binding them. And that's the thing that stands out to me in terms of reassurance. Could Roger Penske, if he wanted to, do this massive, brand new, open break development thing in secret as the owner of the series instruct, force J. Fry and company to insert a rule that says one month from now, 
we're going to have open breaks a week, uh, I'm sorry, a month before the season starts, and then have a huge advantage with breaks, which would then, in theory, allow them to win the championship that year. That could happen if he decided to do that and everyone agreed that works for him to do such a thing. He might be racing against himself, though. He would be racing against himself because since there's no business structure binding everyone else to have to show up, truly have to show up, uh, we are facing a situation where Andretti, Ganassi, and everyone else would say, good luck, man. We're not showing up to St. Pete. Go race by yourself. So, yeah. Could he do it? Yes. Would that be destroyed and broken down by folks not turning up? That would be a yes as well. All right. I need to say goodbye because I got to do some phone calling and interviewing. If I did not get to your question and I'm looking at one, two, three, four, looking at about five, I might not have gotten to send them in again. It's always the option. Send them in again next week. Look forward to answering them here as I say farewell. For the Weekend IndyCar listener Q&A episode on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. Yes, I named it after myself. Raging Ego acknowledged. All brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com. Please, please, please send me your email address via DM. Good old trip hazard. And thank you to Bell Racing Helmets USA. Speak to you next week.